The Guardian. We start with an apology. On last week's show, we suggested we try to steer clear of talking about the BBC for a while. It's not going to happen. I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk, it's the BBC's annual report. We read the thing in its entirety and tell you why it's good news for Jeremy Clarkson, but troubling times for BBC current affairs. Also on this week's podcast, for the first time in five years, there'll be more than one woman presenter on today. Plus, we find out what's hot or not on the 42-inch flat screen which your wife never wanted you to buy in the first place. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And I'm joined this week by Stig Abel, the former director of the PCC, now a media consultant and commentator, and making his Media Talk debut no less, Mr Nick Lawrence, former BBC editor, who is now in charge of editorial strategies at PR outfit Wagoner Edstrom. Welcome both. Hello. It's about time we talked about the weather, which I don't think has ever been done on Media Talk this week. So are you embracing the heat or are you, uh, you staying in the lounge watching the cricket highlights? I am... That traditional British person in that I liked it for a day, I sort of put up with it for the next day and now we're into day three, four or five and I've, I've had enough. I'm it's now too hot. It's too hot. It's too hot. We want to moan for a little while about it. <laughs> so when it's chilly next week, we'll, we'll, we'll return to this topic. Exactly. <laughs> we start this week with the BBC's annual report. It revealed all sorts of facts and figures about the corporation, including the revelation that it spent more than £5 million of licence fee payers' money on three separate investigations and inquiries into the Jimmy Savile scandal. Another memorable figure was the £14 million that Top Gear presenter Jeremy Clarkson took home last year. That includes a salary of nearly £1 million, a dividend of nearly £5 million, and an extra £8.4 million which the BBC paid him for his stake in his production company. Not bad, eh? On top of all that were more and more figures about the enormous payoffs the BBC has been given to its former senior execs, which meant that the amount of money they paid to senior managers surged by more than 60% to more than £4 million in 2012-13, despite efforts to cut it back. Nick, you used to be at the BBC. (laughs) I was waiting for this. (laughs) Talking of the BBC... uh, now, you left uh, a best part of a year ago now, so you've not been yeah. there for a while, but the, yeah. these payoffs were happening while you were there. Give us a, give us a sense of, um, well, what's your take on, on how these happened and, and what the response was to them from inside the Beep? I think that inside the BBC, the, 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 there weren't too many objections to the payoffs. I know that certainly with Byford, uh, I mean, Byford was the big headline grabber. That was the... He's you know, the million the, pound the, man. The, the, uh, the, yeah, the, the 900 grand that he got, plus the gold-plated pension, etc., etc., because he'd been there man and boy since 30 years, since he was a, a runner at Radio Leeds, which, of course, we all we all sort of thought, yes, of course, you're entitled to nearly a million quid for because you grew up with them. There was a culture that... If you take redundancy from the BBC, that obviously you get a redundancy payoff. And that redundancy payoff will be uh, equivalent to uh, a month's salary for every year that you were there. But the problem with all these payoffs are that they're getting more than they're contractually obliged to. So they're one-off exceptionals, but they really are exceptional. And And they didn't have to be. And there's a sense that no one has really thought, hang on a second, this is exceptional. Why are we doing it? And could we not go in at a lower level and and have a negotiation? Can we not? You know, in the commercial world, one would expect you, you you have a very fixed budget to try and work out the cheapest way of dealing with the problem. Whereas the sense you get with with, with Entwistle was it wasn't the cheapest way they sought to get. It was the quickest. uh, I would argue that actually it probably was 
the cheapest way because you you would have a clear claim for a constructive dismissal. Do you know what I mean? You'd you'd have that if you got into that legal battle. You drag that out for a long period. It could end up costing the BBC more. I would, you know, I mean, I'm not. I'm absolutely not an apologist for the BBC in any way. But I do think that with Entwistle, we kind of missed the point a little bit. Well, let's uh, talk about some of those other figures. Stig, I mean, they, they couldn't help but spend £5 million on those several inquiries, could they? Or was there another way they could have tackled that? They needed, that was money well spent in order to kind of you know, regain that trust, in a sense. I actually saw Pollard last night, and I, I met him for the first time. And I actually think, remember at the time, having gone through the whole Leveson process, I found the Pollard inquiry, the report, uh, him personally, it seemed like a very quick, thorough appropriate mechanism for dealing with that specific problem. So I think that side of it was probably well spent. What's striking as you go through the figures is the BBC then starts this inquiry, it then pays all the legal fees for all the the other people associated with it. And if you notice, as with Leveson, who are the main benefits of this process? It's the lawyers. I, I can't imagine what the London legal profession would have done over the last three years if it hadn't been for media scandals. I mean, their bottom line, there must be a spike on all the graphs in all the very nice air conditioned offices around central London of media scandals. It has just chucked money into their coffers. So the legal costs look a bit excessive to me. Someone, some of them had a hundred grand worth of legal advice just. Uh, to deal with a, a report that took three, was it three months to, to, to do? That looks a little on the high side. I think the cost of Pollard itself looks reasonable. Uh, the ongoing investigations into Savile, uh, I think, are probably uh, worthwhile. But of course, as the scandal around the extent to which child abuse was, was more or less covered up or, or that type of uh, sexual power play was tacitly accepted by the BBC. That is a huge scandal and I think it does need to be uncovered. The question will come for the BBC eventually is if more figures uh, are implicated, whether actually their own internal inquiries are enough. And if they're not enough, that looks like money that's been wasted. As it stands, I think they probably are sufficient, in which case they do need to spend the money. The interesting thing here is you look at the organisation as it stands today and versus what it was when you had the big stars. And I'm not just talking about Savile was, uh, was probably a symptom of a diseased, riddled body. It was a very, very different beast to the beast that it is today. And if you if you talk to programme makers that were around at that time at the, in the 80s and the 90s, you talk to them about the culture of celebrity and who ran the place and the, 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 the things that the big talent were allowed to get away with. It's a very different place to what I would say. What is the real benefit of uh, going through a thorough investigation into an organisation that has fundamentally changed in that respect because the sort of sums that were being paid out to talent the way in which they treated it is, is is far different now it's far far different but some some big talent is still earning big cash nick and there was that figure i mentioned at the top there about jeremy clarkson now i, I like a bit of top gear uh, well i used to 14 million quid. you change your mind I it's gone a bit samey i don't know if it's controversial it turns out some of the stunts aren't necessarily uh, you know entirely uh, no. Are you, you telling you me that some television is yeah. real, John? The you, magic, is that what you're telling me? The magic of TV. The spell, <laughs> the spell was broken for me. I should declare an interest because I'm, I'm the, the driver uh, for Top Gear. So, uh, oh, you're, you're taller in real life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're taller than you look. But Nick, how, how, does, how does Jeremy Clarkson end up earning 40 million quid? And is that, is that good value for money uh, from the licence I could be controversial and say I could be controversial and say it's disgraceful that he was only paid 14 million. I can't think of another business 
where the primary driver behind the revenue that is created from that business, and make no mistake, the format of Top Gear and its creativity is down to Andy Willman and Jeremy Clarkson and his celebrity, you know, whatever you think of him as a, as a person, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a brilliant presenter and got a great mind. When you generate over 100 million quid from a global franchise to only get 14 million from it, I can't think commercially of another case where somebody would get as little as yeah. 10%. And he didn't get 14 million from the license fee. And that, see, the, the yeah, main point... That's a, that's a good point yeah, to make there, not, yeah. He got a, no, that's yeah, my point. He got, yeah. he, got a million, he got a million quid, I think, as a presenter's salary, uh, which is license fee money, which looks about market rate. The money that he's got is based on the commercial performance yeah. of something that is captured BBC Worldwide right. outside of the, the license fee. So I'm with you. I, I think that you've got to reward uh, commercial success and you'd expect him to get that. I think the really galling thing about th- some of these figures... Are when it is license fee money, fee payers money, and when you have a sense it's being frittered by people who don't sense the value of it. I don't think the Jeremy Clarkson bit of that has anything to, 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 to do with that annoyance at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you look at the, you know, worldwide pumps a reasonable amount of revenue back into programme making as well. And so it's, it's always important to see that, that separation. Otherwise, and sometimes otherwise, the, the real issues, to your point, Stig, that it can become muddied. And just uh, just one last point on the on the uh, on the report, uh, Nick. Which was uh, part of it is uh, is the BBC Trust giving its verdict on BBC services, and uh, they're not exactly the toughest of taskmasters. So the, the the merest hint of criticism should always be taken seriously. And and they they did have they had something to say about news and current affairs, and we, we knew there'd been a decline in trust after Savile, of course. We touched yeah. on that. But the Trust also said that there'd been a, a, a gradual decline in audience numbers for current affairs shows and said it was concerned about the degree and ambition and quality of current affairs programming. Do, do you think that's fair? And it, it seems like Tony Hall is really making news in current affairs as, as a big kind of, you know, big part of uh, the early part of his, his tenure. Wor- I worked a long time in current affairs and it so depresses me to see that. You know, when you start looking at the budget cuts that have faced current affairs, over a, over a successive of creative futures, delivering quality first, all projects thinly disguised to actually just slash journalism. If you start reducing the amount of money that you put into those programmes, you are going to significantly impact the engagement of the audience in those programmes. Let's look at a programme like Inside Out which has been a, a big hitter for the BBC opposite Coronation Street. No other BBC programme has managed to maintain the level of, uh, of audience engagement that, that Inside Out has opposite Coronation Street. And yet that, that programme has undergone savage cuts, taken away a lot of the, the, the journalism, the talent, the creativity and the camera work and the editing... And what we forget is you start taking away those budgets, you start taking away the training ground for new talent... You see the knock-on effect in ten to fifteen years. It's the same in the in in, in the in the print industry. You 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 guys will have seen this. You start taking away the ability, the, the entry ability, and the ability for older, more skilled producers to mentor younger people as they come up through the food chain, and you start impacting. So it does not surprise me that the quality, but they shouldn't be too bloody surprised because they've savagely axed budgets from current affairs. And that's what makes those 100 millions wasted on the digital project and some of these payoffs all the more galling. Because the point is, if you get a cut, which I think probably everyone accepts in this world you have to do, you could have needed to cut an awful lot less if you stopped some of the the, the silly amounts of money that get spent elsewhere. DMI was scandalous. Absolutely scandalous. Well, there's, uh, there's more BBC news later. Uh, <laughs> even more BBC news later. Are we going to talk about the CBBs getting in HD? 
Uh, we can talk about the CBBS going to HD. Just, yeah, is, yeah. is that exciting in the stick well, household? I just find it extraordinary. My, my children already li- live this this amazing Arcadian existence, which <laughs> of, of 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 pleasure and privilege, and now. And the BBC is going to pay money for, for uh, Bob the Builder to be in high definition. I just find it extraordinary. Do you think they'll have to put more, ba- more makeup on, uh, on, on Bob's face to cover the, uh, cover the wrinkles? I hope not. I hope not. No, they're no, not no. paying more money. It's just gonna, they're going to pay a bit more for bandwidth. But not much more than But, I mean, you're talking we, about infrastructure. Need, yeah. You're talking about infrastructure. Nobody shoots in SD anymore, you know. Everybody shoots in HD, so everything's edited in HD. So it's just about being able to output it. And if you output it in, in HD, you've got, you just have to increase your bandwidth. And that's the reason why regional TV news will never be broadcast in HD, because they can't put enough bandwidth in to manage the vast numbers of stations that would go on air at the same time. It's something would blow up somewhere. So I should get rid of my banner protesting against CBBS HD then? I think you probably yeah. should, yeah. Fair enough. Time to move on now, and uh, it's time to talk press. Uh, and thank goodness Stig is here. Stig, uh, ABC's last week, yep. and uh, which I know you keep a very close eye on. And the Daily Star was the only tabloid to lift its sales in June. Could this have anything to do with the fact that Big Brother is on Channel 5? It can only be that, I think. Because actually, when you start looking at, at that, you, you do try and wonder how they're doing it. Uh, because they're not cutting the price. There's no big, obvious promotional push that they're doing. Um, Big Brother kind of passes me by now, having been very hugely a fan of it at the beginning. And I I almost forgot that it was on television now. But you're just starting to see, I see on Twitter people referencing it, and this season's supposed to be quite good. It's kind of seeping back into the national consciousness. It does seem to be a little bit. And and they've splashed on it, I think, 37 days in a row, which was the great Peter Hill, what Peter Hill did when he took over the star. Have they really? Yeah, 10 years. And he he made his reputation, because when the star became a big paper, depressing though in lots of ways it is. It became a big paper. It went up to sort of 800,000, 900,000 uh, in terms of sales, was when Peter Hill was running it and was running Big Brother, Big Brother, Big Brother. His sort of Madeline fixation came later. His first fixation, his first love was Big Brother, and they've returned to that. And that must, must be it. I mean, none of the other Red Tops have done particularly well. It's very flat market. The Sun and the Mirror have both lost a little. So it really must be... Big Brother, because there's no way, um, Desmond's not invested anymore in the paper. The paper is not noticeably bigger uh, or certainly better. Uh, and I think that the tie-up with, with Channel 5 and, and the access that he'll get, uh, which is always a big thing, um, will, will be the thing that's driving it. So maybe it's a sign that Big Brother is back. Nick, at the other end of the market, um, headline sales at The Independent uh, came within a whisker of falling below 70,000. Wow. Paid for was just 55,000. But thank goodness for the eye, in a sense, because it was up 11% year on year and now, now sells more than, more than 300,000. I think it's an absolute tragedy, really. You, you know, you look at some of the, 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 quali- the, the proper newspapers, what I would term proper newspapers, and it's a sadness that that sort of journalism is being not read. And the independence is going to change. I mean, Chris Blackhurst has said there's going to be a, they've got a new editor in, and it's going to be much more of a comment-based newspaper. I mean, you can almost see it becoming a weekly magazine at, at some point, where it becomes just a compilation of, of comment pieces. The difficulty they have is that a lot of independent journalists provide the content that the Eye then uses, so you can't entirely cut down the independent because the Eye will suffer for it. I, I, I was speaking to someone at the independent. They told me that the majority of Eye readers have no idea that it's connected to the independent. Wow, oh, really? That's bragging yeah. for you. And so uh, it's kind of it's worked in the sense of it's become this this sort of Frankenstein's monster that lives on its own. Uh, but brand wise, it's not associated with the independent. It's seen as this sort of young, thrusting title that people are willing to pay twenty p for, and they don't connect it back to the to the parent, which I think is interesting. 
Okay, well, closer to home. The results were published at the Guardian News and Media this week. Speaking of profitable titles, well, yes, thank you very much. Uh, let me <laughs> let me move on to the figure stick. Uh, uh, digital revenues were up nearly thirty percent to fifty-five point nine million pounds, helping to offset the continuing decline in income from print operations. Parent company Guardian Media Group reported profits before tax of twenty-two point seven million, boosted by the half of Trader Media Group, which it also owns. Stig, I turn to you as my independent observer. What do you, you make of these latest figures from, uh, from GNM? Well, it shows you that the, the digital market is, is ever-expanding, which is, which is good news, because that's obviously where the future of The Guardian lies. And at some point, The Guardian will no doubt no longer have a print product in the next five, ten years. But the problem is that an awful lot of that digital revenue is subsidised, as we were just saying, by, by the print product. How much it can stand alone and make money is very hard to do. And the real test, I think, which is the one everyone is is wrestling with, you either go for the Mail and Guardian approach online, which is just to get as many people through the door reading the content. If you look at both those, those websites in different ways, their content is extremely, it's brilliant content that is very, very wide ranging. Half the Mail content is aimed at America. The Guardian, um, one of the reasons I think you guys battered the hell out of the Prism story so hard was because it was an American story. You, were, you, know, you like One Direction, you were trying to break America. And I, I, I totally see that. The problem that, that you're going to have is at what point will that provide sufficient revenue to support the entire operation? So you either have that approach, the Mail and the Guardian approach, or you go for the, the Telegraph and the, the NI approach, which is to say we're going to lose some of those massive overall statistics but we're going to have a better engagement with a smaller audience we're going to know who they are we're going to target advertising and we're going to build a community behind some form of a, of a paywall and that's how we're going to uh, pay for journalism and it's in everyone's interests who likes journalism who likes newspapers for these experiments to happen to see what the best model is because going back to the BBC just for one second, that's the great thing that blows some of the, this out of the water because one of the biggest newspapers in the country is BBC Online. The, the news section, the sports section of the BBC website is fantastic. There's a, it's called, there's a BBC magazine section on the, the website which is doing features. It is a huge free newspaper that's going to sit in the market forever. And that means they've got, you've got to be very creative. You either go for the Guardian approach to expand it, get as many people through, through the door, or you do the other one. And, and hopefully one or a combination of the two will work at some stage. But at the moment, these, are, well, these websites are not making enough money on their own. I think the, uh, the key is, is recognising that audiences live in ever more diverse groups, to your point about audiences. The, the world has changed where we, where we once had a hom- homogenous mass of people that consumed whatever media they were told to. When you look at the diversification and consumer choice, you're going to start finding pockets of specialist audiences. And I think your point is really interesting about what do you do? Do you go for that really tightly defined specialist audience, which is, which is commercially probably makes a lot of sense because it's easier to pick off for an advertiser. And if you actually start looking at The, the Guardian as not just the Guardian newspaper, but Guardian Tech, Guardian Media, Guardian Gardening, you know, whatever you want to do to create your diverse groups, maybe that is going to be the future. Well, that's what works with the FT. I mean, the FT is a niche product with a very defined niche but broad audience, which is business people who are willing to spend money. And that's why digital subscriptions now... uh, they outstrip the, the physical sales of the paper. It's clearly FT.com is where the future of that business lies. But it lies there because it's a clearly defined market that they can put behind a paywall. 
Um, the question is, if you want to broaden your market as far as possible, will a paywall ever stop it? And the Guardian's philosophical position has always been, we're never going to do it. The Telegraph has joined NI, the ones that they're trying to trying to find. I mean, I think it's not one of those things that people need to be sort of sniffy either way. There's, the main purpose here is to try and find a way to make journalism pay so you can pay journalists. And at some point, we're probably halfway through the sort of digital revolution. We'll get to a point where, where it makes business sense. Okay. Uh, on that note, we'll leave it there. More after this. Well, with Stig here, it would be remiss not to mention the proposed new press regulator, the Independent Press Standards Organisation, which what? could be established within months. You not heard of this, Stig? No. Uh, the replacement for Stig's old home, the Press Complaints Commission. It was unilaterally unveiled by newspaper publishers last week, despite the continuing uncertainty over the Royal Charter, which is required to set it up. Stig, we, we chatted a bit about Ipso last week with, uh, with Roy Greenslade, but what's been, the, uh, what's been the reaction since it was unveiled? I think in the end... It's broadly being welcomed. It's interesting, Maria Miller's quotes with, oh, we've always wanted the newspaper industry to just get on with us. I'm, I'm glad that they're, they're now doing it, which is, of course, not what she said at any point in the preceding year. Uh, so I think what there's a graduating dawning recognition that if anything's ever going to happen, we at least need to start the process turning. Because the Royal Charter's been... It's like the Royal Baby. It's the thing that everyone expects to happen and never will, apparently. Um, and and <laughs> well, as many cameras trained on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and so this, the Royal Charter... I mean, not entirely like the Royal Baby, yeah. No, it's, 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 it's more boring... Well, it's, it's, more, it's more boring and less happy, I suppose, uh, as, as a thing. But in any event... The Royal Charter has been delayed into another committee. They're going to have another group of politicians sitting around uh, talking about it. And I think there's a recognition, and there surely must be a recognition, that if we just said, why don't we try to create something that has the potential to be better than the Press Complaints Commission, better in a, load of, a series of, of measurable ways, which I think is what's on the table, that is a good result. And I think provi- it's a classic example of, of, of the best being the enemy of the good here, where... And this comes right from Leveson, and it's driven by Hacktoff to say, we have to have something that's 100% Leveson compliant, which is one of the most depressing phrases in existence, Leveson compliance, and everyone's obsessed with it, but no, it doesn't really mean anything at all. And so if you lose that fundamentalism to a certain extent and just say, here's where the PCC wasn't very good, here are some of the things it did all right, here's a new body that improves it in the following areas, and Ipso uh, has more powers, has more clearly defined and longer-term funding, it should have come with greater industry buy-in, and at least that will be more measurable because there will be contracts to see, so you can see who's in and who's out, which you never could before. There will be a, a degree of will uh, across the industry behind it. All of those are very positive things that you can waste, you can let it go. You know, Richard Desmond has not paid any money into a regulatory mechanism for his newspapers for now nearly three years. That's 250 grand a year that's been sitting on his bottom line. At some point, he's not going to want that money to come off his bottom line because that's the way he's historically thought so there is a a sense that if we are ever going to get anywhere at all and the PCC is still doing a good job if you speak to the people there you know a lot of the good stuff that people recognize it did well it's still doing but what everyone wants to see is something better than went before and I think the newspaper industry is right I think the Guardian came in behind it there's there's been a little bit of niggling but the Financial Times and the Independent are all behind it even though some of the people they're associating with by doing so they're not always 100% happy about because I think there's this recognition let's start it up let's get going and then hopefully by the middle of 2014 there'll be something in in power and functioning 
Okay, more press regulation to come, no doubt. Uh, But it's about time, I think it's been a couple of minutes, about time we talked about the BBC again. And uh, yes, there's a new presenter on Radio 4 today. Not only that, it's a woman. Michelle Hussein will join today in the autumn, having impressed on BBC World News, BBC One's Weekend News, and, well, you might have seen her on Newsnight. Her appointment follows prolonged criticism that only one of the programme's five presenters is currently a woman. She's also the first minority ethnic and first Muslim presenter in its 56-year history, which is uh, to be welcomed on all sides. Why, why did it take the BBC so long to, to, to get a, another woman on today? This appointment has been made from television. Um, this, is, this is a woman who has made her name, made her career in, in, in television, and maybe that's the answer. Maybe it's, it's to look at broad, broadcast as the broad church of both radio and television, and that would widen the pool, wouldn't it? That would I, mean I think there's, so. a, there's a broader group of people that you can get presenters in. I, I think, you know, we are conveniently forgetting Sue McGregor and her tenure on the Today programme. You know, she was on there for a lot of years. But I do think if you got some... I don't know if you got some uh, some data crunches at The Guardian to start looking at this. and I you believe, start, I actually, believe you do have data crunches at The Guardian. I maybe. think you've got some very good data crunches. But but actually, if you looked at the number and did some sort of survey amongst, amongst uh, radio stations and looked at the number of demo tapes that they get through from men as opposed to women, I honestly think you would get your answer. Well, that is a, that is a task for a future media talk. <laughs> is that true? And if so, why? Mm. Uh, and talking of uh, the uh, formerly award-winning podcast, uh, I got some stats here from uh, producer Matt, who tells me in my ear that apparently so far this year, fifty-three percent of guests have been women on Media Talk. Well done. We've we've skewed that today. They could all. Well, you have. We have helped we've, do that. This yeah. is why I bring it up. We've ruined um, it. I think uh, there are only sort of two women, but they have appeared on the show a lot. No, no, that's not true. No, that's not true. I don't know in totals, because there's medians, there's modes, there's averages, there's all yeah. sorts of stats, isn't there? So there's frankly, any- you could play it any way you like. Yeah, and uh, I'd like to see the fi- Maybe some of your data crunchers could look at how you've come up with that statistic. I think Nick Pollard is going to uh, send me an email next week. And it's going to cost me £4,000. Anyway, moving on. Time now, finally, for the Media Monkey Quiz. Uh, three questions about media news this week. Fingers on your buzzers. Uh, number one, which newspaper boss made his Twitter debut this week? Uh, Richard Desmond. Richard Desmond. But it turned out to be a bit complicated. Did it? I... He turned up as Digi Desmond. Yeah. I... Then oh, he disappeared. No. And then he came back as plain old Richard Desmond, I think. Did he? I, I started following him. As, he, made, he basically came on, made a weak joke about Rupert Murdoch, and, and that was it. I mean, the potential there for him to say some fairly crazy and temperate things is, uh, is huge and... Looking for applauded. A few chats between him and Alan Sugar on uh, on yeah. Twitter. Well, Murdoch McClellan, the CEO of the Telegraph, joined Twitter as well. Really? Yeah. Well, that was question number two. So well done. Yes. Uh, question number three. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to be. I'm going to be drubbed. Uh, question number three. Who complained about actors mumbling on television? Nick that. Lawrence looks like he knows it. He should know it. I should know it, but I, I've I've forgotten it. It's uh, Lord Tony Hall in an interview with Radio Times. Did he? Uh, question number three. Uh, can you tell me the new live broadcast home of the FA Cup? Yes, it's the BBC. And? Is it BT? It is. Uh, yeah, BBC and BT have joined forces, so the FA Cup uh, will no longer be on ITV, which um, uh, I have a lot of, uh, lot of love for ITV, but uh, in this respect, I, I don't think uh, we're going to miss that particular union, do you think? <laughs> I uh, right, so the media of the quiz, I think it was 2-0 to uh, stick. Commiserations, Nick. Better luck next time. I will try my hardest next um, time. And coming up next, it's time to talk TV with Rebecca Nicholson. But in the meantime, my thanks to Mr. Stig Abel and to Nick Lawrence. Rebecca, hello. Hello. Sorry, I just laughed all the way through your intro. (laughs) Well, the the very complicated intro, which no one will ever hear, has uh, bitten the dust. 
so uh, this week we're going to talk about a, a new comedy on BBC Two, I believe. Yes. Called Family Tree. Family Tree is a new comedy on BBC Two. And the premise of this is that someone is bequeathed a box by a long-lost relative, which sounds slightly familiar, perhaps because it's the same plot as Count Arthur Strong. Oh! Um, but it must be a coincidence because this is Family Tree, uh, written and directed by Christopher Guest. Of This course. Is Spinal Tap fame? This Is Spinal Tap. And, and my favourite Best in Show, which I really enjoyed. The dog shows. That's yeah, my favourite one. on that, yeah. Um, so this is a half-hour <laughs> BBC Two sitcom starring Chris O'Dowd. I didn't think it was very funny. Oh, yeah, really? I expected it to be more slapstick, I think, and there's none of that at all. It's very muted. And it's so unfunny that I think, it, perhaps deliberately so, but not in a. So we discussed. Deliberately so. Did, well, we discussed Count Arthur's Christmas gift last set out. week. Yeah, go on. Yeah. And that I just thought was unfunny, despite trying for, despite reaching for the laughs. Whereas this, I thought, was trying to do something different. So in a way, it's going to pique my curiosity. I'm, I'm going to give it another go, but I didn't laugh once. Oh no, I did actually once. <laughs> I can. Is that when it finished? It went no. That, um, no, I was, I'm intrigued. I, I am going to give it another go. But I enjoyed the spoof um, Tudor-style TV drama that they had in it called The Plantagenets. <laughs> oh, yes, with... with uh, with uh, Yes. I was about to say with Sarah Mayall, but she was in uh, Count Arthur Strong, I think. Yeah, she was in... I'm getting yeah. confused between the two. I mean, it's easily done. Same plot. The Plantagenets, no, very funny. But well, I thought it was rather good. Do you know what it reminded me of? It uh, yeah, sort of took me back to the uh, Paul Whitehouse, uh, short-lived Paul Whitehouse sitcom, uh, Happiness. Did you ever see that? I didn't see it, but I re- I, uh, I've heard that was very good. And not a, a sort of long and forgotten uh, BBC Two classic, but it was kind of very gentle humour. Do you know what and, I mean by uh, muted? It was of, quite. Yeah, I kind of smiled all the way through, but never really burst out laughing. Yeah, I'm intrigued. A lot of it is made up on the spot, isn't it? What's the word for that? Improvisation. That's I right. Improvise. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> this newfangled craze. And it was also shot like a mockumentary, but you kind of wondered, well, who'd be making a documentary about these? people? Well, I thought, yeah, Sam Wollaston made that point in his review, and I thought it was a very good point. I mean, what documentary is this that we're sitting watching this man's life? I'm going to give it, like you, another go. I'm going to give it another go. Unlike Count Arthur Strong. Two point five out of five. Producer Matt was very keen on uh, Arthur Strong, to, uh, just to serve uh, purposes of balance. He yeah. thought it was very funny all the way through episode one. And now I feel bad for saying that it was dreadful. But both didn't rate very well. But neither, neither managed to get through the million viewers marks. I mean, that's, not, that's hardly encouraging, unfortunately. No. Also, yeah. this aired quite a while after it did in the US, didn't it? It's a co-production. Count Arthur Strong, is that right? Count Arthur Strong. With HBO. <laughs> no. Imagine if Count Arthur Strong was a HBO show. <laughs> very funny. Oh, and then he, then he got his glasses mixed up. Right, uh, next up, it is... Top of the Lake. <laughs> We're a new BBC Two drama Not starring. Not in no. <laughs> Top of the Lake. Top of the Lake to you. <laughs> um, no, oh, be I've been wanting to say drama. that outrageous. Yeah, serious drama. Directed and by it's Jane very Campion. Like capital letters. Starring serious drama. Uh, Elizabeth Moss. Um, this is yeah, very big capital letters serious drama, uh, set in New Zealand, and it follows uh, the discovery that a twelve-year-old girl is pregnant, and Elizabeth Moss is brought into is a detective who's brought in to to look into the case. Now I'm currently. Is it just because she's pregnant or has she gone missing? No, well, see, this is the thing. In all of the promotional material, they said it's about a missing 12-year-old pregnant girl. She doesn't go missing until the end of the first episode, so it's a bit of a spoiler. But in a way, it adds a kind of nice sense of dread because you know that it's coming. But I still think it's slightly irresponsible to spoil the big plot twist in that way. Um, but she does go missing. Now, now we've spoiled it as well. It's fine, she goes missing. Yeah, so you're yeah, right for watching it on catch-up. I'm currently very into another moody, serious, lake-based drama, um, The Returned, on Channel 4. 
which is my favourite. And both of them, actually, to say one's set in, in New Zealand's South Island and one is in the Alpine region of France, they're kind of quite similar, although there's no undead as yet in Top of the Lake. But it just makes me think we're really spoiled for fantastic drama at the moment. It looks great. We've started a series blog on the website for it and there's some kind of disagreement in the comments about the tone of it and I found some of it funny and I thought it was supposed to be funny and I liked that it jarred slightly with the very serious um, tone of the rest of it. Peter Mullen is excellent, Holly Hunter is very good, Elizabeth Moss is great apart from her wavering New Zealand accent which Uh they try to explain away with a trip to Australia but it's just it's all over the place but I think it's wonderful, it's great, what a weekend, we can watch this on Saturday night. The Returned, there's another two weeks left on Sunday night. I'm spoiled. I'm never going out again. The Returned is building up on my my my, uh, my planner like a guilty conscience. I think I haven't seen a single you one yet. You have to watch it. I feel like I say this every week, but best show of the okay. year. It's Next so week. brilliant. I'll tell you another lake-based drama I really miss. What's that? Total Wipeout. <laughs> Next up. Directed by Jane Campion. <laughs> was that a lake or was it sort of a man-made reservoir? I don't know. Well, perhaps Richard Hammond will uh, ring in. And, <laughs> And let us know, because it is a live live program. And uh, finally this week, uh, now Channel 4 drama that I haven't seen. A bit like The Return. Yeah, Run. This is Olivia Coleman's first post-BAFTA uh, TV appearance. And she, it's, so that it's four episodes, four interconnected stories. They've stripped it across four nights, which sort of feels like Broadchurch did away with that, in a way. Um because people stuck with Broadchurch and watched it week on week. And again, just the return of Top of the Lake, it feels like people are happy to stick with the drama as the weeks go by rather than needing to watch it all at once. Um, nevertheless, this is stripped across four nights. All the stories are interconnected. It's very bleak. It's been written by two uh, first-time writers from South London. And I think you can tell, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Like Parts of it feel very obvious and very um, predictable, but it's still... I watched a few behind-the-scenes video videos after I'd seen the first episode, and that actually made me warm to it a lot more. I think it's a really interesting thing that they're doing. And Olivia Coleman, lovely Olivia Coleman, is a uh, is an estate mum with a foul mouth, <laughs> and it's just nice to see. It's very against type, isn't it? Is it's that very the way against to type. It? It's very, but in a way, it is and it isn't. I think we've we've created this image of her as kind of lovely Olivia Coleman who does funny stuff, but she's at, obviously you know tyrannosaur. She's a great dramatic actress as well she can do gritty and she's doing it in this so I've only seen the first episode um, but I thought it was not great but good and you can imagine can't you stripped across the week in the hottest oh. week of the year I you really want to know who's staying in kind of watching their hands, all you know? of these oh this one's about heroin addict <laughs> yeah put the barbecue away anyway that's <laughs> it this week uh, my thanks to all our guests who were Rebecca Nicholson and also Stig Abel and Mr. Nick Lawrence, uh, my thanks to uh, you for listening, but even more to Mr. Matt Hill for producing. You can leave your thoughts on this week's show on our blog or our Facebook wall, or you can tweet me at the award-winning Twitter feed at JohnPlunkett149. And don't forget also to, uh, I believe there's a, a sort of Guardian TV Twitter feed we should mention here, Rebecca. Yes. Hit me with it. It's at Guardian TV. That's a very good name for it. Thanks again, Rebecca, and thank you for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.